0: You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Spinal cord injuries produce devastating and lifelong disabilities. What therapies are available to us to help our patients who have these unfortunate injuries? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Naomi Kleitman. Program Director with the Spinal Cord Injury Portfolio at the National Institute for Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Thank you for being with us, Dr. Kleitman.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: After a patient has a a spinal cord injury, tell us a little bit about what some of the standard therapies are, and perhaps we could talk initially about emergently right at the time of injury, and then subsequently.
1: Well, the first thing is to try and prevent as much of the injury as possible, and I think that when you really look over the course of the last few decades, one of the things we've done best is to really realize that spinal cord injury is an emergency treatment. So things like backboards and body boards to immobilize the neck during any injury that might have a spinal cord component has done an awful lot to prevent many injuries that would have otherwise happened. One thing you have to realize is even if the bones and ligaments of the neck are damaged in a fall or a sport accident, the spinal cord itself, the nervous tissue inside the vertebrae, may not be damaged yet or may be only slightly impacted. The other thing to know is that there are some drug treatments that can be given very soon after the injury that may actually prevent further damage from happening during the few hours and days after the injury where cells may keep dying.
0: And those medications, I imagine, include steroids?
1: In 1980s, there was a series of drug trials that were conducted called the National Acute Spinal Injury Trials or NASCIS trials. Mm -hmm. They tested a number of treatments, but the one that came out positive in the trial was methylprednisolone, given in relatively high doses. I mean, prednisone is given all the time, but in this case given relatively high and given within the first eight hours after injury. And at least some of the populations tested the outcomes of those injuries were better than expected. So that drug is given in many hospitals in the United States if the patients come in with a closed spinal cord injury and if the drug can be administered within the first eight hours. After that, the overall health of the individual obviously has to be looked after. Very rarely does a spinal cord patient come in with just a cord injury, but the trauma surgeons are very busy with a lot of these patients but they very quickly try and get, again, the head immobilized. There may be a spinal surgery to decompress any bones that may still be compressing the spinal cord, uh, remove bone fragments, fuse the spinal column to prevent further damage. And it's been looked at. It's been somewhat controversial, but it's now felt that if you can decompress a spinal column early, that a patient stands a much better chance to recover if the cord can be protected. After that, we get into rehabilitation. So tell me how far you want to go, and we'll go there.
0: Well, I imagine with all the body systems and all the possible complications after a spinal cord injury that there's a number of things that have to be attended to. What are some of the main ones in the rehabilitation stage that are important?
1: Still, even in the acute care stage, there's concern about things like development of pressure ulcers or bed sores. During the early phase, of the injury, again, one of the things that's become quite common practice is to have rotating beds or to make sure the patient doesn't stay too long in one position. In this case, you have patients who may not be able to feel, certainly may not be able to move easily and can't adjust themselves. That carries over when people begin to learn to use wheelchairs, when their column is stabilized enough to be upright and and moving around. So they have to not only learn how to use the wheelchairs, how to protect their shoulders and and get themselves around, but also how to keep themselves moving around in the chair, have the chair fitted properly, cushions properly fitted to prevent the development of pressure ulcers. A person will have to learn how to deal with many bodily systems. One of the first that they'll begin to learn about is the bowel and bladder programs they'll have to go under. If they can't void voluntarily, they may have to um, be catheterized. There's a, a whole series of treatments for bladder control that they have to learn and, in fact, bowel programs as well. When the bladder doesn't empty completely or when a catheterization is used, you're very prone to infections. Mm -hmm. And the development of either urinary tract infection or worse than that kidney damage can actually be life-threatening. It's still one of the highest risks of mortality for this population.
0: I certainly can remember as an internal medicine resident having urosepsis in many of the unfortunate people who've had spinal cord injuries and how serious that becomes so quickly.
1: Absolutely. Still two of the biggest issues with these injuries is pulmonary respiratory infections and urinary infections. So if you have an injury, a cervical injury, and breathing is impaired, the patient may be put on a ventilator, obviously. If there's enough control to the diaphragm Then a patient can be weaned off the ventilator over time. It may require training the person to breathe and to strengthen their diaphragm if they've been on the ventilator for a period of time. There are actually now new therapies in terms of electronic devices to either stimulate the phrenic nerve or even stimulate the diaphragm itself to try and restore breathing in some of these patients. If a patient has the ability to breathe, but they still have a high cervical injury, they may not have the ability to cough and to clear secretions in their bronchial passages. And so there's something called a quad cough. A person may have to be taught you may actually need assistance to be able to clear secretions to prevent infection of the of the pulmonary system. And then other types of occupational and physical therapy in terms of getting around, as I said, learning to move yourself around, learning when it's time to void, ultimately learning how to handle the, the wheelchair, and then ultimately some aimed at preserving and improving function, such as locomotor training.
0: And that doesn't even touch on certain other things like pain management and spasms and some of the emotional things. It's complicated.
1: Absolutely. There are some good medications. Spasms and pain tend to go together in this population. So baclofen, for instance, is a drug that's very often used to mitigate the spasms. That again becomes an issue if, if a person is undertaking an exercise program, you know, something like a treadmill walking program or something. It's actually somewhat controversial as to whether they should be on their spasticity medicines at the same time as they're doing that. But it depends again on how serious the spasms are, how serious the pain is.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm discussing spinal cord injuries and therapy for the same with Dr. Naomi Kleitman from the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Dr. Kleitman, you've been involved with the development of certain new approaches to helping people with spinal cord injuries. Is there a general framework in which we should be thinking about these approaches?
1: There are a lot of people looking at many targets to try and, first, mitigate the damage that happens after spinal cord injury, and, second, try to repair that damage, actually restore some of the neural connections. At the same time, there are people working to actually work with whatever functions left in the rehabilitative world to make sure that people who have sustained a spinal cord injury can use whatever functions are available to them or adapt Uh, use adaptive devices to give them back the access they need to life as close as possible to normal as they knew it. There's a very big spectrum to go into, but just starting with the first, which is protecting the nervous system after injury. I mentioned the drug methylprednisolone, which is used very soon after the injury. That's a steroid used in a very high dose for a very short time after the injury. That got a lot of attention when it was First tested in the 1980s, early 1990s, uh, a lot of people have been somewhat disenchanted with it since then because, in fact, it really has a somewhat limited effect. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is up and walking whether they got methylprednisolone or not, and there have actually been some studies that bring into question overall how good it is for everyone with injuries. There may be a subpopulation that benefits more than others. Some people now in many countries don't actually use it.
0: Is there any direction in terms of identifying particular subpopulations where you certainly want to use that or that we don't know that yet?
1: We don't know that, and I don't know that that's actively being studied at this point. The issue was that when it when it first came out, it was used across the spectrum, especially here in the United States, and so it's some physicians have questioned whether. There are always some side effects associated with anti-inflammatory medications, especially in a population that's prone to infections, and it's on that basis, I think, that some people have pulled back from using it. There have been a couple of other types of therapies that have been tested. One is Cygen, which is ganglioside blocker, which is thought to be both protective and potentially able to restore a little bit of ability to regenerate within the nerve cells that are damaged. A big trial was done of that again, I think in the 1990s, where it looked for a time that there was a positive effect of Cygen, and there were some famous football players who got the drug and things, raised a lot of attention, and what happened was that the people who benefited seemed to do better in their rehab therapies during the first couple of months, but overall, the people that got the Cygen equaled out in terms of overall recovery with those in the control arm of that trial so that there is some idea that there might have been Too high of a hurdle in that particular clinical trial that was set for a positive result. There may be a sweet zone of a partial injury there where some patients could benefit from Cygen, but that a new trial hasn't been mounted in a particular subpopulation.
0: I see. So that initial early advantage was not sustained, and at the end, the control group was just as good as the treatment group.
1: Yeah, by the end of about a month and a half or so. There is currently a trial going on in Canada. For a drug called minocycline, it's a both anti-inflammatory antibiotic drug. So some people actually consider it a dirty drug. It's been tried in a couple of neurological disorders, but others say that you want a dirty drug. Spinal cord injury does a lot of things to the nervous system all at once, attacking it from several directions. Like that might actually be a good thing.
0: That's interesting because we certainly in practice use minocycline all the time for various things, particularly skin, acne, and, and the like, but it does have several other effects.
1: Apparently, and this is, again, has been tried in a number of neurological disorders. What becomes the difficulty here is if a drug has a good effect, but possibly a, a small effect, it's sometimes very, very difficult to show in a, in a clinical trial what's called a statistically significant effect and a medically relevant effect. That was another thing that happened with a drug that was tested in France, and I think this was an outstanding trial. The drug is called gacyclidine, or GK11. It was meant to be aimed at some of the chemicals that are released within the spinal cord soon after injury. They're actually excitatory amino acids that would normally be transmitters in the spinal cord. But they're released in such high quantity after the injury that they actually become toxic. It's a phenomenon called excitotoxicity, and it's thought to kill off nerve cells in the area of injury.
0: I want to thank Dr. Naomi Kleitman, Program Director with the Spinal Cord Injury Portfolio at the National Institute for Neurological Disorders and Stroke at the NIH. She's been our guest as we've been discussing treatments for spinal cord injury, and she spoke at the end about some more novel approaches that may lead to clinically significant treatments in the future. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.